their paths crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you would ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maud. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This is Bonnie and Maud, the film podcast, with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. Hi. Hi. So here I am, heading up to Ksenia's apartment. It is just after 9 a.m. on a Saturday in November, and my voice is pretty craggy right now, I'm not gonna lie. I had sort of a late night doing karaoke last night, which is just exactly what you wanna do when you are about to record for two days straight. This is Bonnie and Maud. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yarosh. And this is our marathon weekend. <laughs> I was just telling everyone how my voice sounds like shit because I was up late doing karaoke last night. Oh God, I did karaoke two nights ago to prepare for this. <laughs> I like that karaoke is your practice for what? Just like long bouts of talking and singing? Uh, perhaps, but the point I'm making is I did it two nights ago versus last night. I know. I am dying of curiosity. What are we watching first? Uh, we're going to be watching the Czech film Loves of a Blonde. All right. Starting Um, the day off with a little highbrow action. I like it. It's not too highbrow. It's about teen girls and there's a lot of singing and dancing and a little bit of heartbreak. We don't really know what we're going to be watching for this marathon, right? Yeah, I think our tastes are varied enough and our DVD collections uh, span enough genres that we're going to have different picks. And so today and tomorrow, we are doing this roving marathon where we go to eight different couches for eight different movies in the span of a weekend, and that is our version of a marathon. It's uh, it's good for the butts a little bit, I think. <laughs> I have no comment on butts. Uh, mine's going to be asleep immediately. As we watch each movie, we're going to be chatting a little bit about it, and we're going to bring in the friends who are hosting us along the way. Some of them you've heard from before, some of them you have not, and we'll see what happens. The madness, the possible <laughs> transcendence at the end, we'll see. I really look forward to seeing what our friends pick without the guidance of a theme or anything beyond pick a movie. Uh, And I also am excited to see how they watch movies. Like in their home, we kind of get to have the full experience. Cool. So uh, after we watch Loves of a Blonde, we will come back and talk about it. And hopefully my voice will come back a little bit. Oof. You know, I found what my, like, karaoke song is, finally. 99 Red Balloons. Yeah. I mean, really? It's, like, totally in my range. We just finished watching Loves of a Blonde from 1965. 
Milos Forman's first Academy Award-nominated film. It was in the foreign language category in 1965, but lost. Later, he would be best known for his film Amadeus. I love that movie. I watched it many times as a kid, and I really didn't get to know Milos Forman's Czech films until much later in life. Um, but I really love this one particularly. And uh, for those who want to know a little more about him, I would highly recommend his memoir. It's called Turn Around, and it's very funny and sad. And even if you are not necessarily a fan of his films, it kind of gives you a nice overview of what Czechoslovakia was like in the 60s and 70s and what it's like to be a foreigner who comes to America um, to make films. You've seen this movie before. Why do you love it? You know, I grew up in Ukraine, and there are a lot of little elements in this that either remind me of some things from my childhood, like some people or aesthetic or just little exchanges, even like there's a scene in the film where this young girl who is the focus of the film puts a tie on a tree and this guy who I guess is like the guy responsible for this part comes by and he's like, you can't have that tie on the tree. What if a deer comes and it's scared? Take that tie off. Like soon enough, you're going to cover all the trees with ties. And that kind of like weird, funny bureaucracy um, was a huge part of the humor with which I grew up as a kid. And um, yeah, it really hits the spot in terms of that. And um, it's just... It so perfectly brings across that tremendous longing you have as a teenage girl where you do things that maybe aren't even that comfortable and you spend time with um, you know, men that you might not want to be with just because you want something, like you want affection and conversation and um and sort of on the flip side of that, like the distance that men go to just to sleep with women it portrays it in such a like intimate funny sincere natural way um that that that's why I love this film there was a lot in it about the rituals of courtship and the hierarchy of looking which was the best way I could think of to describe it. So there's this scene where a bunch of men have sort of been, they're in the military, to this town where they're in the army reserves, which sort of means that they're older men. The girls in this town, it's a town of 2,000 young women, were expecting young men to come on the train. Right. <laughs> but but it's all these middle-aged men. They throw a dance for them, and there's tables of older men and younger women and younger men sort of scattered about. And there's this very long sequence where uh, everyone is sort of looking at other tables of people kind of longing for them. Um, but I guess if you want to think about it, like they are looking at people that would be kind of like a reach for them, I guess, like in terms of the types of matches that society like deems appropriate. So we have the main girl, the blonde, um, Andula, 
and her two friends and they're really young and pretty and blonde and this table of older middle-aged men who are kind of slimy are like looking at them and trying to plot how best to ask them to dance and then meanwhile there is a table of brunette women who are maybe a little homelier and they're looking at the middle-aged men and kind of trying to get their attention so and the middle-aged men are kind of disgusted by them and the blonde girls are disgusted by the men and it's just this whole uh cycle of people trying to get one another's attention and trying to appear attractive to one another and it was fascinating and it actually reminded me of Greece in a weird way just like different uh different like social cliques social castes kind of aspiring uh, to be with someone of a different social cast, almost. This film also reminded me a little bit of Ida, which we both saw earlier this year. This kind of girl falls in love with a musician and is drawn in. And uh, yeah, a little bit of the of the look of it, too. There are a couple of things in this that when I brought it up, you mentioned, oh, that's like a very Soviet thing, right? So... These girls live in this town and they work in a factory and they live in dormitories. And there is kind of mandatory work time and mandatory play time where the women are expected to kind of court men and then maybe get married from there. Is that is that what you were saying? Yeah. Uh, the Again, like, you know, I'm not an expert on Soviet Union because I only lived there until I was 10. <laughs> and what? By the time I left, uh, a lot of that stuff had already faded. So some of it I just know from the experience that my mom had. But I know that um, at least when she was growing up, uh, part of the Soviet culture was in addition to working a certain way a certain time you also had to be involved culturally everyone was part of um, the communist party from a very young age and so you were expected to not only cooperate at work but also be seen and friendly and cooperative (laughs) at these social gatherings even if it's a dance if you weren't like yeah if you weren't part of a team even socially you were looked down on and there were meetings had and it was questioned like why weren't you part of the team right you were saying that um when we were saying oh god these men are so slimy and these girls just like don't want anything to do with them Ksenia you were saying that if they rejected them everyone would know and that would look poorly on them and then maybe no one else would ever ask them to dance yeah I what I said is I just don't think like the uh, the blonde girls basically end up having drinks with these older guys because they don't have the luxury to say no. They're not interested in them and they don't, you know, really, <laughs> they don't pretend too hard to be interested in them. This is something, though, that um, I see in a lot of teen movies, uh, movies that center around teen girls especially, which is doing something that makes you kind of uncomfortable but for the experience of doing it. Like, this might not be a good idea, but I sort of am craving life experience, so I'm going to say yes anyway. And then if it winds up being a bad situation, I will figure out how to get myself out of it or I'll deal with the consequences. But, like, I'm going to say yes to everything. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think that's a huge part of adolescence. And that's one of the things that this film gets so right. Like, towards the end of the film, what the girl does is she visits um, Prague, where the boy that she met earlier in the film lives. And she ends up at his parents' apartment. He's not home yet. And the mother keeps asking her, like, what were you thinking? Where did you think you would come? Are you going to spend the night here? How? Why? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's not how teens think. Like, you're just gonna do things and kind of improvise from there. And and that feels extremely realistic to me in this in this film. I loved that mom. <laughs> she was so funny. She was such a mom. She was very relentless and really tough and like asking hard questions and kind of stressing not only herself out, but everyone around her. But still a caretaker. Like she she seems very pushy and she's kind of frustrating to listen to sometimes, but she still, you know, they make the bed uh, for, what's her name? I think it's Andula. Andula. Um, and they let her spend the night. And uh, when the boy comes home, the mother insists that he shares the bed with the parents. Like It's almost a slapstick scene, the way that the parents and the son are kind of like switching positions in the bed and they're like begging each other to go to sleep. And the mom and dad cannot let one another have the last word. And it's really funny because it's this like really goofy scene, but then we cut to right outside of the bedroom where Angela is listening this whole thing go down and the boy is saying I didn't ask her to come like what's her problem and everyone's saying she's created all this problem for us and she's just crying outside the bedroom like where the hell am I right now and then she goes back to her dormitory and tells all the girls like his parents were so nice it was great I think I'm going to visit all the time and the girls kind of are excited for her and they embrace her and they sing songs and it's Like, so much of this film, as much lack of actual understanding and love as there is between the men and women, there seems to be a lot, a lot of affection between the young girls. They're, like, the only sort of true relationships that all of these girls have. And it was actually really wonderful at some of the dance scenes to see the girls dancing with one another. Because they're not enough guys, but also, like... They probably at this point feel much more comfortable with each other than the boys who only come to these dances like maybe once a month or something. This movie actually is now reminding me of one of my favorite movies of all time, which is All I Want to Do. These girls really only have each other and they've grown so close with one another and they trust one another that when when these boys are shipped in, basically with the sole purpose of hooking up, they think, wait a minute. I don't really want to do this. Like, is this, is that all there is? That's kind of what it seems like. And so the girls wind up being such advocates for each other and not at all competing with each other, really. Yeah, that reminds me of another great scene in this film that I think was also your favorite, where after the lead of the film spends the night with a musician, afterwards she's sneaking out of his room in his coat And I guess she doesn't have anything on underneath. Uh, Like, she's kind of hunched over. It's a morning after outfit. Yeah. And and then as she's sneaking out, there's someone else on, on the other side of the hall. And they both kind of hide. 
and then come out and it's another girl in a big coat sneaking out of a room in the morning and like the eye contact that they make is so perfect like it's so yeah we're both in this together like it's not judgmental it's just like shucks it also felt really real to me the way uh, Angela, but also a lot of the other characters in the film, the girls, would sort of have these inevitable disappointments in the department of love, in the department of courtship. There are a lot of moments in this film that made me very uncomfortable, like the way that the girl's teacher is telling them that they need to get their shit together or they're never going to be picked by some boy to be married. And then also the really manipulative ways in which the middle-aged military guys and the the young pianist who Andula ends up, you know, kind of falling for, they're all so slimy. And there's this idea that the girls just kind of have to go along with attention because, like, they're lucky just to be getting the attention. Now, I know this is the mid-60s in Czechoslovakia, but, like, ugh, it just made me feel so gross inside. Yeah, they're... Um, one of the scenes in Loves of a Blonde is um, where the boy is talking to Andula and she, she talks about some of the scars on her wrist and how she tried to commit suicide. Um, and his whole thing is like, oh, yeah, tell me more about it in my room. Let's go to my room. You know, these are things that happen. And I, I think it's important to see it for other people who might not have experienced it. I think it's really interesting to consider that this film was made by a man because it doesn't put men in the best light. Um, but it's still, you know, it infuses these difficult moments with a little bit of humor just to make it a little more digestible. Yeah, Milo Forman did a great job of kind of getting into the experience of being a teenage girl and again, doing these things that you don't want to do, but you do anyway because you think you should or because you want a new experience or because you want to tell your friends about it later, even if it doesn't go very well. Mm-hmm. I would be curious uh, for you to see Fireman's Ball in the future. Um, and for anyone who's interested in his films, I sort of think of Loves of a Blonde and Fireman's Ball as a double feature um, because it also focuses a lot on the relationships between older men and younger women. So we are about to go to our friend Rachel's house and watch movie number two of the Bonnie and Maude roving movie marathon. Uh, We will come back momentarily once we are there, moving forward in time and space. Um, But for you, it is only a matter of seconds, and we have no idea what she's going to show us. So uh, we're about to find out. Thank you for having us over, Rachel. Of course, it's uh, it's been fun so far, but you know, just getting started. You have us in your lovely sun-dappled living room. I also love. We walked in. There's a bowl of popcorn with some kind of delicious-looking spice. I can make uh, to illustrate the popcorn. Is that... <laughs> Beautiful field recording. And you have a television, like a legitimate tube television, um, just waiting to reveal what movie you've chosen for us. Please tell us. 
Yeah, so I thought that I would leave it on this Netflix screen where I type in each letter one at a time. It's a little let's, difficult. Let's try to guess. It starts with a D. Uh-huh. Uh, d- Dreamhouse. Dr. Moreau. Welcome to the dollhouse. No, no, that's wrong. <laughs> D-R-I. Let's... The suspense is killing me, but you have to say each letter as you <laughs> drink it in. buddies. Yes, yes. Yeah, Ksenia got it. So Drinking Buddies, <laughs> yeah. the Joe Swanberg movie Correct. starring Olivia Wilde and Mark Duplass. And I've seen this movie, but I've not talked about this movie. And I had a lot of thoughts about this movie. Can I also say, though, that as you have typed in the word drink to Netflix, the other two <laughs> possibilities are From Dusk Till Dawn, the series, and a movie that I've been wanting to revisit, Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood, which is a really <laughs> great movie. Yeah. So why did you pick this movie? Uh, I chose this. I saw it last year, and I remember... It's doing a lot of things right that I think a lot of traditional rom-coms have been screwing up, and so it was refreshing to see it. And there's also, this plays with the idea of like an unlikable, quote-unquote, unlikable female lead, um, which I love talking about. All right, let's go. Two shots of Malort. Uh, no. Right from the basement. Go on. I'm not drinking Malort. You're going to have a shot. It's a Chicago tradition. You're single. This will erase all the I'm past single. mistakes. It does. Makes room for oh new ones. Oh, my God. Here we go. It's like swallowing a burnt condom full of gas. Spread out along the open shore. I was wrong when I said it was Mark Duplass. It was definitely Jake Johnson. I can't tell bearded white men apart. They all look the same to me. <laughs> um, so we just finished Drinking Buddies, which Rachel, our good pal, chose for us. The Joe Swanberg movie from 2013, is it 2013? About Olivia Wilde plays Kate and Jake Johnson plays Luke and their co-workers at a brewery in Chicago. And they have sort of a friendship flirtation, even though they both have other partners. And then we just sort of follow where that goes. Rachel and I have both seen this movie before, and Ksenia saw it for the first time, so I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts. It was a lot more complex and interesting than I had anticipated. I mean, the the big crux of the film is about affairs and like the consideration of sleeping with people who are not your partner. And it gave it a lot more time and complexity that I had anticipated because we never actually see spoiler alert we never actually see people having sex with someone other than their partner so it's a lot of talking and kind of thinking on screen about the concept well there is an infidelity that occurs which is between Luke's girlfriend and Kate's boyfriend it's kind of an unexpected moment because the whole time you're expecting Luke and Kate to hook up and then their significant others do. But I think what I find interesting about this movie is it asks the question like what is cheating? You know, like Luke and Kate have this really close relationship and they cuddle and they finish each other's sentences and and sandwiches. And he gets jealous when she sleeps with somebody else. So there's definitely an emotional intimacy there and is is that cheating? on his girlfriend, Jill, because, you know, he has this other woman that he has complex friendship, maybe more feelings for. I'm really annoyed in films when directors sort of 
put the two main characters, you're made as an audience member to root for them to be unfaithful to their partners because you can see that these two people clearly have more chemistry than the people they're currently with. And that annoys me as a trope in movies. And what I really loved about this is that there wasn't that payoff. And it sort of made it much more complicated um, and unpacked that issue. It's like, well, it's not always that simple. And I, I thought that was really interesting. In most love triangle situations and films, the existing partner, be it wife or husband, is like kind of just like a background character that we see being shitty. <laughs> like they're either boring or they're just like very... Or naggy. Yeah, like very clearly from the beginning marked as like a bad person who needs to be replaced. And in this case, Anna Kendrick does such a great job of being a great person (laughs) we were so her character is really well fleshed out and she's you know a secondary almost minor character in this movie and her care like everything she does is so fully formed she's the type of person who has matching luggage she has a backpack that has like a picnic set in it with plates and actual glasses she like makes 3d models and paints them Mm -hmm. Her character is so well-formed. And the thing that's true about their relationship is that it is it is believable. It's not as if you see them together and you're like, they, they don't belong together. You sort of see them joking around with each other and having this uh, fun relationship and they sort of balance each other so well. I feel like the, the big story or like question in this film beyond uh, infidelity um, and like male and feel, female relationships is the concept of the cool girl and like the nerd girl, um, like the homemaker versus like the cool girlfriend that you wish you had and like how these tropes have been created in film and literature and how difficult it is. Like it's something that I think a lot of women kind of strive for or like men look for in women, like the woman who can hang out with the guys and drink a ton of beer. But then there's also the other one who can take care of him and like make a meal and clean up his hand wound. But she is also the one that commits infidelity. So I like that we're constantly being thrown these tropes in this movie and then they're being taken away from us, mm-hmm. right? And there's so much talk about the cool girl because it's a really, you know, big speech in the middle of Gone Girl. But yeah, I mean, Olivia Wilde's Kate is totally the cool girl. Like the first shot we see of her, she's these like friendship bracelets and her bra straps are seen through her like tank top and she's got sunglasses on her head and a messy bun and she drinks a lot of beer uh, with the guys all the time and hangs and calls them pussies. And like, yeah, she's cool. But she's also not very mature. She's not romantic or affectionate, which are I don't actually think are bad things. Like, women don't have to be that. She's kind of like, you know, the the man child is a, is kind of a movie trope. Um, this idea, I think the New York Times calls it what, like emerging adolescence. Ugh. <laughs> um, but she is that, you know, she can't really commit. She doesn't want to commit. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier in the movie, her boyfriend who winds up dumping her, Chris, gives her a copy of Rabbit Run by John Updike and is like, oh, you remind me of the main character, which is not a compliment because that, you know, the book's about infidelity and Rabbit also doesn't want to settle or commit. And uh, 
Yeah. It's kind of a very clear message. Like you talked about how she's a man-child. It sort of illustrates the limitations of being a dream for a man in any capacity. Like, yeah, you're a cool girl when he first meets you, but then, yeah, you don't really know how to keep house or... And just uh, one of the scenes that I think is the most striking, and I think uh, Joe Swanberg is really great in, in his details, and so you can sort of pick up all these subtle things about characters based on the background and the small things. The so, sets and their clothes. Right. So we come into Kate's apartment, and we see that she still has the happy birthday banner hanging up, and her birthday was probably months ago at that point. And it's just like, oh, God, it's so sad. There's still sort of like the cardboard that the birthday cake was on with like tiny scraps on it. Um, our com- our relationship as viewers to her is very complicated. And, you know, at the, before we watched this, I, I mentioned her as this like, quote, unlikable character. Um, I didn't see that. Yeah. I didn't see her as unlikable. I think she's unlikable in that she doesn't do what we want her to do. She doesn't be who we want her to be. But I, I mean, who do we want her to be? We want her to be Jill and still cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, still happy in her how aloof she is. Not like not that scene where she kind of cries on the couch after her friend leaves her, um, and they hadn't slept together. Well, what did you think about their fight? I actually wanted to ask you. That's one of the more interesting scenes, I think, that like after um, they have this really tense moment and Kate's, you know, basically saying like, what, why are you so mad at me for sleeping with this guy? I'm single. I'm allowed to do that. She says like, I'm allowed to be a slut and you can't make me feel bad for it. I love that part. I'm, she's so right. I mean, nobody can tell her who she can and can't sleep with and how many people and in what circumstances. And like, I I will say that I really like her character and I find her very complicated. Mm -hmm. And again, like there's nothing wrong with an unlikable female character. The very first episode of this podcast is about exactly that. And I find those characters so magnetic. Um, And I think, yeah, Kate is absolutely right in that scene to tell Luke that he's being an asshole. She left the door open um, for him to make a move many, many times. Like they went uh, skinny dipping together. They had many alone times and they like slept in a bed together. There was a lot of like cuddling and touching and build up, and he never followed through on that. So the fact that he didn't actually, you know, again, follow through and sleep with her when she made herself open to it I think is what's so frustrating is like he was annoyed with her for sleeping with another guy but he didn't go for it he still wanted to be with his girlfriend he just like kept flirting with the idea of sleeping with his friend maybe we should talk about Luke's character for a second he is really into like going out and and playing games and like being kind of tease-y you know he like teases people and they laugh and he's you know has these like big ideas like you know what we should do right now like let's make a fire it's gonna be awesome I think he like benefits a lot from having a girlfriend like Jill who has like the caretaker role like when he slices his hand open in Kate's presence she can't do anything and he isn't really sure what to do either but then Jill is kind of like that she has this maternal streak in her. And that's, you know, I guess 
I think Kate makes him feel cooler just to be around. Like, I don't think he even has the confidence to sleep with her. He just likes her attention and likes being around her. I think he's a homebody and he's actually pretty quiet in his home life. I always kind of pictured him as the instigator of the flirtation between he and Kate, but maybe it is her. I think that whenever he does instigate it, it is a more innocent kind of flirtation and it's almost like a brother sister thing and she's the one who sort of takes it too far she's the one who gets naked and tries to get him to go skinny dipping dipping and he just sits on the beach by the fire and doesn't join her she's testing him she wants to see like how far she can take it and he doesn't respond but still gets mad at her for sleeping with someone else jerk (laughs) (laughs) what i like about this movie too is that it's sort of it sort of surprises you. So you're being set up to think that they're going to get together and obviously that never quite materializes. And I really appreciate that. It's not an easy clear-cut movie. That would be a regular rom-com. And I think a lot of people didn't like this movie because uh, it's slower and meandering and it doesn't give you what you want. And those are the things that I appreciate about it. Yeah, I applaud that too. I still remember Joe Swanberg from uh, the Young American Bodies days. Um, It was his kind of online TV show project that I watched in college on this website called Nerve that was all about sex. And I was kind of obsessed with that show, like repulsed and obsessed. And this is actually the first film that I've seen by him since that show so long ago, so... He's definitely made some progress, and I think his portrayal of women has uh, improved. Awesome. Um, Well, thanks, Rachel. Good choice. I was delighted to revisit this movie, and I think I liked it even more the second time. And thank you for hosting us for our Bonnie and Maude roving marathon. Yeah, I'm glad you guys came out. Where to next, Ksenia? We're going to Park Slope to visit our friends, uh, Joel and Anna, and uh, we're going to watch a movie about noodles, I believe. All right. Uh, (laughs) From beer to noodles. I know. I do kind of want a beer now. (laughs) We will be back soon in a new location with a new movie with a new set of people and possibly with some beer. And now here we are at Joel and Anna's, and upon entering, we were offered homemade ramen, and were treated to the fantastical delight that was Tampopo, a 1985 Japanese movie that I am in love with. For reasons that you now understand, it was a completely weird film to watch in Language Lab when I was studying Japanese. Um, <laughs> the three minutes of like breastfeeding, the food fetishism, passing the egg yolk back and forth between um, two lovers' mouths. This is really just a love letter to food. <laughs> well, to recap, I guess we should say that um, the movie basically follows this woman, Tampopo, who owns a fledgling ramen joint, and this cowboy sort of comes through town and takes her on as his protege to help her basically be the best ramen chef 
in Japan. Um, but along the way, there's sort of this like slacker-esque, like the Richard Linklater film, like slacker-esque vignettes where it kind of follows characters from one scene to another. And they're just kind of these like little self-contained stories all having to do with food. And it they are so delightful and super strange. Everyone who watched it, we loved it. And it made us appreciate definitely eating ramen in a new way. And um, we learned a bit about Japanese culture and fine dining i guess but um it's a weird cross between like a food network show where they're like teaching you <laughs> they're teaching you how to make all this stuff and there's like almost like uh, step-by-step instructions uh, but then there's also like this this obviously long sort of arcing story almost spaghetti western and then there's uh, like no pun intended well there you go <laughs> but then and then just in the beginning when they open up with that fourth wall breaking like a guy sitting in a theater like don't make noise, don't eat anything loud during this film. It sort of like you sort of sets a tone where it's almost like airplane or something like that. I was expecting a lot more like slapstick and there's not much of that. There's a lot of humor, but there's not a lot of like over the top silliness. I loved Tampopo. She is this single mom who owns this business and winds up becoming such a boss. I mean, we're gonna be and spoiling this movie anyway so there's not that much to spoil because really it's you have to watch it for the characters and just some of the exchanges and it doesn't really matter where the plot goes well so then we can say that she does indeed succeed with her ramen (laughs) uh restaurant by the end of the movie the cowboy-esque character Goro comes in and they wind up amassing this like panel of five experts and they're really tough on her and they really push her and they do not give her undeserved praise, and she really struggles with wanting to impress them. So when she finally does, it's this amazing success moment. We were all laughing about this. The line at the end of the movie, what does the uh, the old like ramen guru say? Something along the lines of like, uh, I I didn't think that a woman could make like good ramen or good noodles. Um, yeah, just sort of, you know, standard old man, like racist grandma type thing, you know. Well, all the other restaurants that they go to, um, sort of in preparation for, like, making her restaurant better are owned and run by men. So it's clearly, it's not something that women do very often. I think my favorite scene was, there's a couple, like, makeover montage and like a couple training montages in this um but the best makeover montage is when there there's like makeup and there's floral dresses and they're like tempopo we need to she's a mouse we need to change her and kaseni and i are like oh god we're gonna take her hair out of the ponytail and like put her in a dress and then there's the reveal of tempopo's makeover and she looks like the most professional chef. Her, She has the chef's hat on. She's got chef whites. She is totally a boss. She looked like she was about to run that place. But then, like you said, like five seconds later, they, they bring up a sheet and suddenly she does, they gave you what you thought you were, you had just narrowly avoided where she's got all the hairsprayed hair and the makeup and the polka dot dress and everything. You got your best of both worlds, I think. Yeah. My favorite scene in it was um, pretty much totally unrelated to the rest of it. It was with an older woman who comes into the supermarket where it's just the the clerk or the owner sitting at the register. And she kind of 
sneakily goes up to the fruit and just like starts pressing it until juice comes out and he is concerned and starts following her and she just like runs around the store and like puts her fingers all over it's everything like a game of cat and mouse that he's like chasing her around and she's like pushing holes into all the food i just i think i love uh crazy old ladies who are not nice <laughs> and do whatever they want you're right she's a total punk every scene in this movie has to do with food and i don't know if i don't know if that is an erotic thing for her to be you know feeling the the firmness of all of the different foods in the grocery store or if it's just her way of sort of like sticking it to the man but there were a couple of very erotic scenes Involving food that, Anna, you're still incredulous that you watched in a classroom. <laughs> Language lab. Yeah, it was really awkward. I mean, we've definitely seen, like, food as erotica in movies before. I was mentioning that um, in another Japanese film, although Japanese-French, uh, in the realm of the senses, an egg plays a majorly uh, erotic role in the sex life of this couple. And in this movie, there is also an egg plays a major role. Uh, but in a, like, a much stranger way do you want to explain what they do oh they um so he cracks an egg and then he puts the yolk into his mouth and then passes it to his lover and she passes it back unbroken i think they go about six rounds and then finally the egg it breaks in her mouth and kind of like flows out um it's very sensual i guess <laughs> i mean and i think a lot of what tempopo is saying is that food is sustenance it keeps us alive but it also is so imbued with meaning in many different ways it's it's sex it's family it's ritualized um it's cultural it's it's tourist um i also loved the scene where this older woman very stately is teaching a group of young women how to eat italian food with a knife and a fork and she's saying do not make any sound and then there is this non-japanese uh white guy in the restaurant slurping his spaghetti and they're all horrified until they start slurping their spaghetti too oh i guess we should talk about the sound effects in this movie a little bit right they were amazing very much accentuated to the point where Sometimes they weren't even like the real sound effects. Uh, uh, someone was eating a noodle and it would be like a slide whistle. But just when they're all slurping their Italian meals or whatever, it's like a symphony of slurping and it just goes on and it's it's so funny. The main thing about this movie, there's so much joy and so much care that goes into not only the way that everybody approaches food and everybody approaches creating food or using food, but I felt like there was a lot of care in the filmmaking itself too um again i'm so thankful to you joel and anna for letting us in your home and giving us ramen and showing us this wonderful movie so thank you so much you're welcome i'm happy to share it yeah come by anytime (laughs) tomorrow all right sure are at Chris and Tanya's house in Cobble Hill. Hi guys. Hello. Hi there. 
both yeah. of you from the Read It and Weep podcast. I'm so excited about the movie that you've chosen for Ksenia and I today. Um, why don't you introduce it? So we're going to be watching Empire Records, Yay! which is a, wait, 1995 film. <laughs> I'm very thrilled to be, to be doing this. There's, there's just so much. I don't, I don't even know where to begin. Tanya, do you have a history with this film? No, I don't know what you're talking about. No, I don't remember the first time I saw Empire Records. I think um, probably late middle school sounds about right, somewhere in there. Um, and it definitely like cemented in my mind like what it is to be a cool young person. That's that's this is definitely the archetype. So you guys are getting a really scary look at like what I think I'm supposed to be doing. Me too, completely. I think I also was in maybe like early high school or late middle school when I saw this movie, but mm-hmm. definitely young enough that I was like, oh, so I'm going to be cool like that when I get older, when I'm like 18, and like, this is what my life is going to be like. Because you know what's cool is rock and roll music, having a job but not working hard, and getting to be with whoever you have a crush on by the end of the movie. Yeah. That's what we all want, right? (laughs) That's absolutely what we all want, most certainly. Ksenia has a lot to look forward to. Yeah, Ksenia hasn't seen this. We're all very excited to show her. I yeah, hope we yeah, haven't yeah. made her expectations so high. Me the whole time I'm watching the movie, like, <laughs> do, do, waiting do you for like my it? No. Do you like it yet? Was that funny? That was funny, right? I hope I like it. <laughs> what if Ksenia hates it, you guys? I'm, I've been trying to prepare myself for that possibility. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't yeah. talk it up so much. Like, yeah. it's okay, I guess. No, the best. The be- I'm a 30-year-old woman watching this for the first time, so I might not have the same quite uh, intake mechanism as a teenage girl discovering it. Sure, sure, that's fair. (laughs) Yeah, that seems reasonable. (laughs) All right, well, let's do it, and then we will look immediately to Ksenia for her instant reactions. (laughs) (laughs) They all said life just a bowl of cherry. reveling in the fact that Rex Manning is married to Tabitha from Passions <laughs> and was also in Greece too. I think we're all better off from having discovered that fact. Connections. Connections are very important. <laughs> I just needed you to know that he's a handsome man or was once upon a time before Empire Records. Yeah. yeah. Before he was Rex Manning and not so sexy. You don't think Rexy's sexy? <laughs> <laughs> Say no more, more, no more. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of brings up an interesting question, and I'd love to kind of hear from you guys, like, because I haven't watched this since I was younger. I wouldn't say like a teenager, but younger. And I kept thinking this time, like, who the heroes are in this movie and who the villains are in this movie? Like, who do you like and who do you not like in a movie like this? I mean, there's so many characters, but, like, do you wind up hating Rex? Do you wind up liking Liv Tyler? Like... I was not rooting for Liv Tyler. Um, I wasn't really rooting for uh, Rex either. 
Um, although I don't feel he deserved all the hate uh, and being kicked out of the record store. The person I was rooting for the most was Joe and the owner of the record store. And I felt really bad that he was surrounded by these incompetent children. (laughs) (laughs) But he really surrounded himself with those incompetent children. He handpicked all of them. I know, but... Lucas can stop the heck out of a shoplifter. They were really fucking up his life. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about things that I did not pick up on the first time I watched this. Lucas was Joe's foster kid? What? Yeah. yeah, that was shocking. And also that he was like given to the state at 10 and then at 13 was adopted by Joe. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder Joe doesn't fire him for Anything. losing all the money. This, I think watching this movie as an adult has like revealed, because now I'm paying close attention to the plot points, <laughs> to the really supremely, perfectly plot points, <laughs> plotted points of no this hole, movie. Not a, hole. not a single hole in this movie. No, none whatsoever. Uh, Plot? Uh, <laughs> uh, I think I, that's the end of that statement. I I found this movie to be more mumblecore than Drinking Buddies, which I think... Wow. Well, Drinking Buddies was made by mumblecore director, and this was supposed to be a real movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pastiche, and teenagers were very emotional, both quietly and also at times loudly, but it was mostly, I think, about how cool it is to hang out and have a job in a record store, as long as it's independent. As long as you don't really work. Exactly. <laughs> Even though Joe is constantly telling them to work. Like that's, that's his slogan. I guess I was rooting for Deb. I mean, the scene of this movie that's always stuck with me is the scene where she shaves her head. Mm. I mean, Ksenia and I are on the record as being obsessed with that scene <laughs> and like dramatic haircuts in film in general. And, you know, she's troubled, but she has an interesting, albeit small, journey throughout the movie. And my favorite part is that she not only works it out through her hair, she also works her issues out through crafting. (laughs) (laughs) And doing the taxes. I mean, she does, she is by far most valuable employee. She does the taxes. She sells her Vespa to do a big down payment on Joe's money for the store. She's always helping. And, and she even, like, she helps Corey when she has her, like, crazy breakdown. Yeah. The crazy breakdown scene was way crazier <laughs> than I remembered. Like, I remembered, I was like, oh, that kind of goes off the rails. But, like, Renee Zellweger has, like, a screaming fit and, like, loses her mind and then immediately, like, kicks off Liv Tyler's screaming fit. Yeah. Which is kind of incredible. Well, and then AJ attacks Rex. There's just yeah, a there's lot just going a on. a lot going on. Yeah, but they take so long to like get to that point. Like, you know, it's it's AJ's fifth year working in the store. Which, by the way, how old was he when he started working there? Like, how is that? <laughs> he just doesn't like, and he he implies that he has his own apartment. But clearly, like, Corey's just getting into college, and Gina is just sleeping with everyone. So we don't know what she's up to, yeah. home lifestyle. Like, there's just a lot of confusion. And also, is it a Saturday? I just kept wondering, like, is it? Importantly, it's a Saturday. Oh, that's oh because because the, the previous night was Friday night. The Friday close was when Lucas took the money to Atlantic City. Mm. I guess it's a good point. It takes so long to get started. And like so long, to, you know, you introduce the thing, but it's a really slow burn up to the point where I think maybe halfway through the movie, you reach peak boil of just like characters are milling about doing yeah. all their crazy things because they have to introduce one character at a time and bring it in and... I think part of that, though, was we were watching an extended possible director's cut <laughs> of this true. movie. So it's all of the... It felt a lot longer. 
also, this is our fourth movie of the day. (laughs) But this is the one that I've, like, seen a million times. So every deleted scene that was added back in, I noticed. And I was like, I get why that was cut. I, like, I appreciate film editors so much. They made really good choices the first time around. This is not, like, your Brazil or, I don't know. Your Apocalypse Now. Your Apocalypse Now, your Metropolis. We don't need an extra We don't need every last moment that they could possibly come up with. Definitely not. I, yeah. Okay. I, I just want to point out what a great job Chris did summarizing the plot. <laughs> and if you haven't listened to Read It and Weep, Aww. that is his number one skill, and he has just demonstrated it. Thank you. Actually, this time I feel like, and I think we all were, just like paying way more close attention <laughs> to like, okay, what is this? What is it trying to say? Like, what, what is this movie mean what is it trying to be when before i think i just watched it was like oh rock and roll that's cool well it's like i want to know why we loved this movie so much when we saw it especially tanya and i who both watched it as we were in middle school and i don't know that's who we wanted to be when we grew up Mm -hmm. right like who did you want to be um i think i wanted to be a little bit of Liv tyler with like a dash of deb and like Lucas's sarcasm. Uh, I wanted to be kind of a mix of everybody. I liked Liv Tyler at first, but then she got insane. Yeah. <laughs> None of that like weird pill addiction stuff. No. Yeah, no. How about you? Um, wh- who did I want to be? Yeah. I think I definitely. I mean, I I connected with the idea of being like the like winsome, like doesn't know everyone's in love with her kind of person. But then at the same time, I liked. I liked Renee Zellweger like taking the mic at the end, although that does not hold up so nicely. <laughs> but I think what I what I also really loved, uh, and I remember this, and I didn't, I don't know that I knew that this was the thing that was always jumping out at me. But across like all of the the friendship and like gender stuff, they're always very like affectionate with each other, and like everybody dances with everybody. Everybody's like kind of just like I'm here for you. Like don't worry. Like let me look at your wrist. Did you really try to kill yourself? Like there's like a lot of like weird physicality. They all touch each other a, a lot. lot. A lot. Um, yeah. In the funeral scene, Liv actually kisses Deb on the forehead. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, it felt it felt like movie affection. It felt mm-hmm. like the sort of thing that doesn't actually happen in yeah. real life. Yeah, I was yeah. not. I wasn't savvy enough as a young person to not know that or <laughs> to know that. I just like, I remember watching that and thinking like, when I get old enough, we're all just going to be like weird, touchy friends. Can't wait to dance in the middle of a store with yeah. a hot guy. He's going to take his shirt off. Yeah. Like I'm going to have orange bra straps. It's going to be so great. Yeah. yeah, that was definitely. You know, there's, I think the scene that really crystallizes this is the end credits, that party on the roof where they're just all dancing with each other and everybody's just having a great time. And that's kind of the message of the movie. I, I'm not sure, I'm, you know, I'm not convinced there's anything more than just like, yay, <laughs> record store. That's kind of what it is. And like... That's pretty much the only scene I had seen before tonight. And I was hoping more of the movie would be like that and not so much like screeching and like having fits. <laughs> it took a long, it was a... A long path to get to that final yeah. dance scene. Parents just don't understand. <laughs> damn the man. <laughs> they say damn the man, and there's like an expectant pause, like four or five different times. Like everyone always goes, damn the man. And you're like filling in the blank, like save the empire, <laughs> save the empire. It's so weird. 
<laughs> there are a lot of moments of this movie that really stuck with me. I think I was at like, I don't know what your like stickiest pop culture age is. Is it like 13, 14, something like that? But so much of this movie has stuck with me forever. And what's weird is that as I get older and watch this movie, I realized the actual like meanings of those scenes. Like for the longest time, I actually didn't get that Deb tried to kill herself because like it was just over my head. Obviously the foster kid thing, had no idea. Yeah. Um, oh, and the the one thing that I was like very taken aback with with this version that we watched is when Corey, Liv Tyler, tries to seduce Rex. Oh God! The line was changed. They swapped yeah. in a different line reading. So in the original cut. She like seduces him with her like diaper underwear, as Chris <laughs> pointed I'm not out. A baby, I'm not, she, she, I'm not a baby anymore. Yeah, it's like you must have been a baby when I was on TV. And she goes, "I'm not a baby anymore." And she takes off her skirt to reveal like white, slightly <laughs> like, like they're, loose they're, underwear. They're like, they're like lady Y front underwear. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, yeah, you look like a baby though. <laughs> I know they might have been going for purity, but it's just hard to. They ignore. were. And so in the original cut, Rex unzips it. He leans back. He unzips his pants and says, rock and roll, baby, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's rock and roll. But it, rock and roll. In this version, he like picks up a bottle <laughs> of ranch salad dressing. Oh, blue cheese. It's Importantly, blue cheese. blue cheese salad dressing and says, I hope you like blue cheese. <laughs> what the fuck is that? Yeah, this fan remix edition. Oh, uh, you know, it was the DVD that was available to me at Barnes & Noble in Woodenville, Washington when I was 16 years old. I'm not judging. I'm very glad to have seen this, actually. It opens this movie wide up for me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Just the, the blue cheese. And it's weird because he, he says it in such a resigned way, like, I hope you like blue cheese. And she, like... <laughs> And then she like flees. She flees the scene and is like, is like, not my virginity. And, and then he just like dresses his salad. Like, like, yeah, he goes, well, all right. Wait, do you mean salad metaphorically? No. <laughs> Literally. Oh, it's just the worst. Oh, God. So earlier, I think off mic, Ksenia mentioned uh, at, the, at our last stop at Joel and Anna's that she had detected a trend uh, throughout all the movies we saw today. So, Loves of a Blonde, Czech film by Milos Forman from 1965, Drinking Buddies, 2013, Joe Swanberg, oh, rom-com, nice. Tampopo, the 1985 Japanese Ooh, food extravaganza Ron adventure, and Empire Records from 1995. Correct. Seduction. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> thanks <laughs> for... Yes. <laughs> All of these films deal with seduction in very strange ways, whether it's through food or blue cheese dressing. Uh, or also food. <laughs> I guess the interesting thing is it's only in Tempopo that the seduction is... Um, accepted um, versus like in all the other films. It's people trying to get each other in different ways. Um, and in Loves of a Blonde, there is sex, but it's like uh, you're cringing by the time it happens. The seduction also, attempted seduction happens in that movie through wine and in Drinking Buddies, it happens over beers and Tampopo goes without saying and this movie... <laughs> blue cheese. So maybe the deeper, uh, the more specific thread throughout all of these is seduction through food, which is a really 
random theme that we wound up with on day one of the marathon. Yeah. How is, did that happen? It makes I, sense. Like, oh, go ahead. I, I have found that when you watch a lot of movies, you just start piecing them together and like search for whatever connecting tissue you can find. All right. And I mean, I think seduction in general, like, I mean, you go to movies to, to see things that are larger than life or I mean, like the two things that are always in movies is sex or death. And, you know, and true love is always like the you know, the distant goal, but sex is always the false, the, the easy way, the, the false way. And like, I don't know, food is just, it's great. It's sensual. There's a lot of, you know, it's around your mouth. There's all that stuff. Like, I, I, I don't think that, no, mouths are sexy, but it, they, no. Chris but will go on the record. I will go on the record. Darn it. But, um, no, it just makes sense that so many movies use, like, food and the central experience of eating or drinking as well as, you know, like, to pair with seduction, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I never thought that, uh, yeah, I could we could draw a through line between these four movies, but I'm glad that we did. The one question that remains, Ksenia, did you like this movie? <laughs> I'm still dying to know. It was... Totally okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it may have been <laughs> built up. <laughs> uh oh. That may have been our fault. I'm that's sure it. that's totally our fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> I like the music. I think I'm going to go home tonight and buy the soundtrack. Um, as far as the characters, I <laughs> I um, was pretty frustrated with them. Yeah. <laughs> what of the journey of Mark? Do you, weren't, weren't you just invested in whether or not he would join the band Guar on his <laughs> drug trip? <laughs> I still love that Guar was in this movie. Yeah. It's, I feel like it's such a, it just slots so well into so many of those movies in that era. And like, in, just in terms of like the cast and like so many of the weird themes, it just feels like it's part of a larger fabric that is is weirdly essential to like my understanding of life. <laughs> totally. I mean, this movie, Clueless, mm. 10 Things I Hate About You, Can't, Can't Hardly, Hardly Wait, Wait yep. which Ethan, well, he became Ethan Embry by then. He was Ethan Randall in this movie. Whoa, what? I don't, I don't, he yeah. like, I don't know why, stage name or something. Yeah. I don't know. You can just draw connections to like, the culture of the time like there's so much maybe it was a director's cut thing but i noticed more talk in this version of like media like what media what uh form you listen to your music on there's like heavy debate over cds versus vinyl and someone makes someone else a Mm mixtape and i don't know maybe i'm just interested in that now because it makes me sad that (laughs) uh even though joe bought empire records like probably closed like 15 years later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember spending so much time in record stores and as much as like all of the listening booths and all that stuff was really overblown in this movie, it really did take me back to like going and putting on headphones and being like, okay, in like 10 minutes or so, I have to figure out if I really want this whole album. Like that was totally a part of like being a young person and like making small talk with the people at the register and just like that culture is is so completely gone. This is a very over-romanticized version of that, but it's still, you're right, it still brings you back to that feeling. 
or totally taints the movie <laughs> for someone like me because I'm watching it for the first time and they're like so excited about keeping this record store and in the back of my mind I'm like, <laughs> you guys need to invest in MP3s. <laughs> and I like, I feel so jaded, but it's like, it's hard to like forget the history of what will happen very soon. There, I don't know if any of you guys have read this. There's actually an article on BuzzFeed that goes through the history of this movie and how it was made. Oh. I think they interviewed a lot of the filmmakers and a lot of the people who were in it. And it talked a lot about why this movie was really successful to people of a certain age. And it wasn't the age of the people that were in the movie. It wasn't <laughs> late teens, early 20s. It was people who were in their tweens and early teens who wanted to be that as we grew up. So this movie does a terrible job of depicting what teenagers are actually like or what running a record store is actually like, <laughs> but it romanticizes the hell out of having a job, hanging out, you know, being a cool kid. And that's what every tween wants, right? Mm -hmm. And I think for the people who are in the movie, it actually kind of like making this movie was also like that because these are all young actors. Maybe it's their first time away from home. I think they shot on location in like Virginia or something uh, or North Carolina. And they just sort of like went nuts. And like there were some arrests and like there <laughs> really? were hookups. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And um, it's all in the article. And so I think for the kids making this movie, like this wasn't so far off from what their experience was, which I guess is cool. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of get that feeling. And maybe I think maybe that's some of what you like or what I remember plugging into as a young person being like, wow, like they're just all so comfortable with each other. And it's amazing. Like there is some of that that kind of bleeds through. They all wear very loose pants. <laughs> <laughs> that helps, I think. This has been so fun. Thank you guys so much for hosting us yeah. during the Bonnie and Maude roving marathon. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for for taking in this movie that was that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> this okay film. Very okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm good. glad I saw it, <laughs> yeah. and I'm glad I saw it with you. Oh. And good luck with uh, making it through another day. <laughs> yeah. Day two starts tomorrow. We're going to be watching a Doris Day film to start off the morning, which I think will be perfect. Yeah. Um, because it's like a shot of caffeine. <laughs> yeah, uh, her perkiness will rub off on us. And the film I have picked for you is also going to be awesome, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. There are girl gangs involved. Yeah, so thus concludes day one of the Bonnie and Maude Roving Marathon. Thanks again to Chris and Tanya, Joel and Anna, Rachel, for all enduring films with us and ushering us through this experience. <laughs> more tomorrow, or if you're listening on the podcast, more in about 10 seconds. <laughs> Když se dlo chystá Jimmy, tu zamrazí mě.